Hello and welcome to Resisting the Script, 25 plus years of queer activism. This is a queer history podcast that we'll be looking at 2SLGBTQ plus activism in Canada. Through this podcast, we hope to introduce you to unwritten stories of queer organizing in Ontario, the people who are there, and their amazing contributions. Today, in our last official episode of the series, we will be talking with Faith Nolan. Faith is a folk and jazz singer-songwriter and guitarist with deep roots in queer, women's, and anti-poverty activism. Born in Halifax, Faith is the founder and director of three different choirs in Toronto and the producer of the film, Within These Cages, about women in prison. Faith and I had a very lively conversation and talked about what it was like to grow up knowing she was a lesbian very early and very young and attending clubs, attending lesbian bars in Toronto. And we got a chance to talk about the many contributions that lesbians in Toronto and in Ontario have made to queer rights that are often under-recognized. This was so, so lovely, and I thank Faith for being so generous. As always, while this is a remote project, we just really want to recognize that we are all recording on stolen Indigenous land. I'm recording in the traditional territory of the Lenape people, and Faith is recording from Toronto, Treaty 13. A final reminder that tonight, Tuesday, June 22nd, we will be hosting a live panel with four of the five speakers from the series. And we are very excited to join together and talk about the series and sort of put all these stories together and in context. And I'm so excited and I hope you join. You can visit Rainbow Faith and Freedom's Facebook page for more information. Now to the interview. So welcome to the podcast space. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's very nice to be here. Well, could you just give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself, Faith? Yeah, well, um, well, as you said, my name is Faith. That's F-A-I-T-H, like hope and charity, you know, because I sometimes have trouble saying the T-H um, with the Faith thing. My last mm-hmm. name is Nolan. That's pretty easy. And my background, yeah, I'm, I'm a two-spirited sort of dyke, lesbian, butch, um, black, Mi'kmaq, Irish, working class. Um. But anyways, I've been around for... I didn't feel it. I don't feel it's that long. But when I, you know, look at the dates, uh, they tell me different. So I have been around for a long time. So I was born in 57. I came out when I was 11. I kissed a girl. I remember there's a song, I think, I kissed a girl or something. And um, she was 18. And, it, you know, we, we were at a party because I went, I went to school at St. Paul's Catholic Girls School. And I grew up around Regent Park South here. Um mm-hmm. Regent Park, uh, Parliament and Queen, where I, I live at Parliament and Shooter. But my school was just down the street, and somebody had a party. It was like, I think, I'm pretty sure it was a Catholic party because their school was all girls. and uh, But there was a boy there. And I remember it was very funny because someone said, have you, you know, I don't know, we got talking, and he said, have you ever kissed a girl? And I said, no, I never kissed a girl. And she said, neither have I. And she said, well, why don't you two try it? So I kissed her, and I was like, wow, you know, like soft lips. Like I nearly fell out. I was used to like big mangy tongues in my mouth and stuff. So that was really great. And uh, that got me, you know, kind of sort of on the path. Then I I started reading all these um, books in the library, like that would say the word homosexual or the word lesbian. And um, I, I, and well, I, then I started going to like the Blue Jay, which was a lesbian club in the 60s and 70s on Pape and Gerard, um, which is now like a Ukrainian, it was a Ukrainian club like during the week. But on Friday nights, it, 
Fridays and Saturdays, it would turn to a lesbian club. And Patty mm -hmm. and I can't remember her partner. They both, these two dykes owned it. And they had Dobermans at the door in case the police came, you know, to harass people or men came to bother us. So it was kind of really cool. And no, you know, those were like, I remember them, me and Mrs. Jones got a mm. thing going on. And all these songs were playing. It was like, oh, you know, and the secretiveness of it all and the, and the excitement. Well, of course, it was the 60s. And by that time, I was probably 14. So it was just like 1971. Mm. And then... um the sort of androgyny of the 60s was, you know, like everybody, all like black people had big afros, you know, whether they had a penis or a vagina or whatever, everybody had the same and long hair and mm. everybody wore t-shirts. And at that time, their t-shirts were just like, it was a t-shirt. It wasn't like a girl's t-shirt or a boy's t-shirt. And their jeans were just jeans. They weren't boy girls and jean girl jeans. And so there was this kind of androgyny that was really nice growing up. And then I think as dykes, my generation kind of aimed to be androgynous, hmm. you know, which was to be all things. Now I guess they call it um, fluid or like no gender binary kind of thing, right? So um, out of that, I think I then, after reading, and I think being in the community, I learned about political organizations like CHAT, which I had said, told you before. It's a Community Homophile Association on Church in Dundas. And I started going there, but it was, it was really, it was fun. It, it was full of a lot of drag queens, which was, I always uh, had great respect for drag queens and for um, people who are changing their sex or trans. Um, mm. And those were my friends. Those are the people that took me, you know, say, come to my house and they would say, come on, little butch, you'll take care of you. And uh, there was two black uh, drag queens and they would take me to their apartment and cook for me and stuff. By the time I was four, and then I, well, I went to some lesbian organizations called um, Loot, which was on Jarvis Street, and that was uh, political dykes, you know, and it was like, uh, you know, very androgynous, uh, and uh, but very, you know, looking at the, the sexist roles or the idea of XX chromosomes and XY chromosomes and that somehow men were a broken chromosome, so the Y was the broken chromosome. This was a book by... Um, you could read it. I'm sure you still got Jill Johnson. It was called Radical Lesbian Nation. So reading that book really kind of, you know, changed my whole view of the world mm -hmm. and um, of what to be female men, right? And mm -hmm. um, so after Loot, I started going to, started reading more and more uh, lesbian feminist literature because I, I found it, you know, that that existed like the mm -hmm. Lavender Press was a, a lesbian, um, you know, uh, they would publish lesbian writers and stuff. And read, I guess I read Radcliffe Hall. And, you know, there's a sort of whole journey that I don't know if it, the journey's changed that much. But I, I was kind of, and I, there was um, Victoria, these two uh, English lesbians, like that was 1800. So I, I would read anything I could find that was queer. Mm -hmm. But they was very white, of course, at that time. Um, but there were a few black lesbians and, um, we all sort of went, we went to bed with each other just because I, I grew up in the black community, like around region was a lot of Scotians, which is what I am, which is Micmac black and Irish mixed. And we're very much like, I guess, us blacks anyways. 
that was a culture I grew up in, you know, like soul and funk and you know how to dance and how to be. And then I, you know, I went to this club with all white lesbians and at that time, I mean, white girls were doing the, you know, like a spaz dance. I mean, that was like, you know, like, and I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, and then I, I tried to dance spazzy to fit in, you know, but it, yeah. so I had to kind of adapt. And um, also I think there was a warmth in, in, in uh, because African-American or Afro-Scotian culture is very warm because we were oppressed, so we had to kind of be together and be loving. And so the sort of the, the coldness of, of uh, wasp or European mm. culture, you know, not being as warm, I had to adapt to all of that. But still it was freeing because um, just the gender roles, you know, in the black community or the gender roles in the white community, all the gender roles for women to be a second class citizen by being a lesbian, I could escape that. I could mm. leave that. And say, I don't need a man. You know, like was a, there was a T-shirt said, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. That was like the great lesbian saying, you know, we do everything. You know, we build, we whatever it takes, we fix cars, whatever, we move mountains, we can build roads, whatever it takes. We don't, we can do everything. Doesn't mm. need it, you know. And uh, because the society is saying that we couldn't as women do those things. And not only that, we can have great orgasms together. So what what can you give me? You know, like what what is it? You're going to give me oppression, right? No, I don't need that. You can take that. So I think that was the lovely. And I think becoming a lesbian allowed me. I mean, it also meant that I was very isolated from my straight friends, right? Because it was like being a lesbian then was considered um, a mental illness and a, a depravity. It was like being a pedophile when I came out. So, um. And I remember later on, I going through all of this, but getting involved with the lesbians in Toronto, right? And we had our own club. And of course, I played the little guitar and sang, as did many lesbians then. And we would we would have like lesbian music. We'd write our own songs. And so it was a great kind of uh, cultural setting, you know. And of course, lesbians have always been into health, you know, all of uh, yeah. vitamins and Reiki or yoga, you know, all the sort of cutting edge stuff that straight people have just maybe now caught on to. Like, for example, Birkenstocks. We were wearing those probably, you know, in the 80s, right? Now it's become Birkenstocks. Everybody's wearing them. So a lot of our comforts, you know, the things mm. that we contributed. And also, like, the the, well, the women's movement. If you look at the um, women's movement, it was lesbians who've always been at the forefront of it. If you look at the women who've started shelters for women, it's always been lesbians. And we've never gotten our due for that. So mm. I think that's really... Um, and it seems to like get disappeared when today the things that lesbians have accomplished and have done uh, gets disappeared in this sort of queer history um, as women and, and pretty much other stuff goes like that's number one, or that's what's sort of written about, or that's what's important. And that's very much, I think the structure of society, like for women in general, whether you, you know, you're a lesbian or whatever, you're kind of like, you, you ain't going to be heard. <laughs> um, in whatever form you might take. So, but I like to, you know, I think the activism of just being out in the sixties and the seventies, it was, it took a great deal of courage and, uh, but it allowed for freedom that, uh, you know, I'm just so glad to have lived, uh, that freedom. The more I hear about different women's stories of their, um, having to succumb to the patriarchy or male oppression. And then, mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and it sort of got, okay, so I grew up with the androgyny of the 70s, right? And then you had the 
eighties and then this kind of bad, the swing of like tons of makeup and, um, high heels for women. And, um, now I guess it's Botox and, okay. um, you know, breast implants or bum implants and all this kind of stuff. Right. Cause you're not good enough as you are. Mm. And, uh, it seems to have like, it's almost like a, a what they call it a backlash. It's kind of like yeah. when Obama got into the white house and turned it black for a minute. Now, you know, then all, what was the backlash? Out came Trump, right? The, the right wing neo-Nazi, boom, you know? That's the, sort of the backlash. So I don't know if that, mm-hmm. the feminist uh, movement, which, you mm-hmm. know, has always been. I mean, really, we have to look at it as hundreds of years. Uh, um, you know, when I, like as Angela Davis said, one of the first demonstrations held for women uh, in the United States was held by a group of black women workers and um, talking about their wages not being equitable with men so and um also when we look at the matrilineal societies in the indigenous with indigenous societies uh that you know we have to realize that women have always had a great role to play and as lesbians that we've always been a part of every society it's not a new movement and the european notion of it being just you know oh it started in the 70s well i know for me i grew up here so it started in the 70s but when i looked around the world and i saw you know read african literature and indigenous literature and then south asian literature and i saw well it's all over the world it's been going on for a long time you know queers have a very very long history and um very much as healers and as people uh, who can see from who have great insight right um mm. So when I think the next part you're acting about asking about is the spiritual activism, how has it impacted my, I think in terms of um, spirituality, when I think about being Mi'kmaq and I think of the spirit is the earth and I am the earth. So I am the spirit. Mm-hmm. And there's a great movie you should watch. It's called uh, for colored girls who's considered suicide when the rainbow's not enough by a writer named Entezaki Shange. And at the last line of it, she said, I found God in myself and I loved her. So I, that was very powerful. So when I think of spirituality, it's about we all have the ability to be all we can, all we can for ourselves and for other people. We all have an innate humanity and an innate connectedness that we all have as human beings on the planet. So when I think spirituality, I think it very much... Um, you know, the, the heartbeat of the nation, every nation has a drum yeah, and everybody's heart is beating. So here we are all on the planet beating hearts together, you know, uh, striving to, to live in harmony with nature. Of course, because we live in, a, well, they call it the West or the developed society or the underdeveloped, depending on how you look at it, uh, mm. the Europeans kinds of notions of the earth, which is, um, you know, fighting nature or overcoming nature um, as opposed to being one with nature um, mm-hmm. and notions of like Darwinism, the strongest survive, you know, it's, it's not true that, you know, if uh, the little ant didn't make that little hole and eat that sort of thing, then the, that helps the whole earth to function. You know, we all play a part. And w- one day a friend of mine said, you know, you know, the Buffalo, they would roam around, they before they became extinct and um when the buffalo 
we as human beings, like long ago, that was our job. And it's still kind of our job in nature. You know, we drop our cells, like, you know, you go to bed at night and then all these skin cells like drop right off of you, <laughs> right, onto your sheets. But mm-hmm. as you're walking along on the planet, your skin okay. cells are dropping. So that is your mm-hmm. that is our role as a species, right, on the planet, just getting back to pure science and nature. But we're never told that. We're, we're told we're sort of at the top of some food chain, as if any part of the food chain wasn't important, you know? Like, what part are we going to take away, you know? We won't exist if it all doesn't kind of work together. Fortunately, Mother Nature has been able to, Mother Earth has been able to sustain herself. And she would continue whether we sustain ourselves as a species or not. So I think when we, we have to kind of have this kind of notion of spirituality being um, the oneness of of the Earth and our connectedness to it. Mm. When did you start learning about that part of your spirituality? When did that start to be more intuitive? Well, I was a member of an organization called the Black uh, Feminist Collective, Black Women's Collective in the 80s. And um, we did a lot of demos to stop the police shooting, like they shot Sophia Cook. And we had demos in front of the police station at Young and College. And um, we had our newspaper. It was called Our Lives. And we would write about all of the... Uh, you know, poverty, justice issues for women. Um, and we'd invite women from Brazil and Africa to write in it. It was a very good uh, little newspaper. Um, when we would all hang out, we would, um, you know, have a drum. We'd have some, somebody would have a drum and then they would teach a little drum beat. And then we'd all sort of join in with the drum beat. And then we'd learn uh, the chanting. So we'd all be like, you know, we're all kind of dykes. I mean, there were two women that weren't dykes when they joined, and they turned into dykes. So, yeah, so we would just learn to drum, and we would drum together doing that. And then uh, hand drumming, I went up to the Paw Manitoba in the early 80s uh, for a demonstration because a woman named Helen Betty Osborne had been killed in uh, 1976, and her murder had never, uh, nobody had ever been brought to justice. Everybody knew it was four white guys in town that took her out. Uh, and raped right. her because that was a it was like a sport to go rape a, a native woman on the weekends. That was like kind of call, call of the colony, you know, like how the West was won, you know, mm-hmm. when the Europeans came, this was something they did. So mm-hmm. I think this could have continued on. Uh, right. So we did a demo for Helen Betty Osborne. Um, I think it's only recently that the last of them has been in, put to jail, but it's it's taken mm-hmm. a long time. And certainly, the murdered missing Indigenous woman. But anyways, we would drum up there, and we learn. Uh, I learned a couple of little things, and um, going to the in the Native Center right on um, Spadina, and uh, I've been in different little drum groups with uh, you know my Indigenous sisters at the Native uh, Women's Resource Center and stuff, and learned to. Uh, I know a pretty good number of songs now, like a lot of drum songs. I think pretty good. More, I know more uh, indigenous drum songs than I do African ones. I think, but I know more blues music than I know either of those. So, mm-hmm. um, but I think all that is kind of spiritual. And of course, I started doing a lot of programs um, in jails for women uh, in the eighties. After when I. Um, this early, even before that, like when I was about 25 or something, I started doing, because of my cousins, I found they were in Kingston Penitentiary for mm. when, when I went there to visit. Some of my cousins had gotten into trouble with the law. So 
I was really moved by that. And we started singing and I started, they started singing with me. And it was such an honest, you know, like sang this one song, I'm going to miss you when you're gone. And then we all like started crying, miss you when you're gone. And it just was like so real. And I thought, I want to keep that musically. You know, I, I had been doing, uh, you know, concerts mm. in big halls with people. I was like, you know, like the middle class. It's all lovely, lovely. I just feel so much now for those native people since I heard you. But, you know, I, I just wanted to get away, you know. And But these was, this was like real shit, you know, like real feeling. So I kind of um, made that my mission to do as many, play as many jails as possible. So I've played like jails almost, you know, all over North America and in Europe and whatever. It's always been, so someone says, go do a gig. I say, well, it's a jail nearby. <laughs> you know, I want to do a free gig there. Uh, just because it's it's been so healing. And I know for myself as a young queer, uh, I was locked up for being queer when I was about 17 in the, what they call a Cam H. Back then it was at Spadina and um, college, but then it was called the Clark Institute of Psychiatry. And uh, another young woman was in there. She was 16. She was queer. She was Italian. That time, of course, it was still a, uh, if you were queer, you was a mental illness. It was considered a mental illness. It didn't get wiped off the books till 76. Um, so both of us were in there for being queer. And I, you know, I the um, orderlies, they would like throw me around at night, beat me off and whatever. It was a horrible, horrible experience. So something about being back in the jail uh, with those women. And of course I'd grown up, I mean, my mother was a bit of a, you know, like Bonnie and Clyde, she was kind of a gangsterish kind of woman. She was very cool, I think, but she had problems, many problems. But she, um, the police would break, she would run card games, right, and booze cans. That was illegal drinking. You know, she would sell beer and wine on the weekends, and people would uh, gamble. Uh, and that was against the law. But she's from Cape Breton, of course. And Cape Breton, there's are very, there's nobody around. Like there's, you know, it's a free for all there. Like they all have booze cans. You just grow up having booze cans, right? Because there's no bars there. It's just like really far out in the country. There's not much around. And of course people sell the liquor out of their house because that's just, there's no Mm -hmm. liquor stores. So, you know, and so when she came here and she had us, and my father, you know, he died drunk and he was, he was a jazz musician and he had worked in the coal mines too, but he died so young. I mean, she had to like take care of us. So, and we were really hungry. Like I was eating the paint off the walls when I was a kid. So when she started bootlegging and gambling, having gambling, then we had money and, you know, I was getting like fresh tomatoes and oranges. It was like, wow, you know, living almost good as the queen here, you know? Uh, So I thought that, that kind of made me, you know, if you look at a society too, that is so wicked, for example, 1947, it was against the law for black people or indigenous people to go to university, become nurses, all these jobs. So I've grown up, like, this is what my parents have experienced. And so the mm-hmm. society is unjust and unjust, you know. So they say when in, injustice becomes the norm, then rebellion becomes the duty. So for anyone to um, do an activity that they might say is uh, illegal, You know, for me, when I look at it, it's like, what your system is, (laughs) you are the most illegal Mm -hmm. thing that ever existed. You know, another great example is women in jail, like being thrown into solitaire. Um, You know, I have a, I have a CD I did with those women's uh, words. I, because when I was doing the workshops in prisons, I would have 
the women write the lyrics about what was going on with them. And, you know, a lot of times women were long ago in Kingston Penitentiary, 50% of the women weren't pregnant when they entered mm. jail, but they were when they got in jail, which means they were being raped. You know, 50% of the women were being raped in the jails and just total mistreatment. And this kind of thing goes on and on and on in this side. And it's just kind of all hidden, right? And then they talk about, oh, democracy, what a one, you know, what a wonderful, lucky country, what a wonderful place, you know? But that's just the veneer of it, right? And uh, everybody's so interested in just consuming <laughs> or they're so um, programmed in consuming, you know, with the TV mm-hmm. and the ads and, you know, you got to have your $2,000 phone or whatever, all this kind of shit. This So programmed, they don't really, uh, they've gotten away. They keep mm-hmm. us away from who we really are, our, our own humanity. I'm kind of getting to this kind of the meaning making part of things. Um, I'm wondering if you could define what resistance for 2SLGBTQ plus people mean to you. Resistance for me has meant the rejection of, of stereotypical gendered roles and sexualities. Um, and, you know, of course, that means how I would dress, what I would look like, what, uh, how I would walk, how I would talk. Um, how the things I would do, you know, we're talking about using power tools or just resist, uh, I'm resisting. Those are all my, you know, uh, points of resistance. How I would do my hair even is a mark of resistance. Uh, what clothes I wear, that's a mark of resistance. Um, what things I value is a mark of resistance. I, if I don't value your diamond ring that you got married to somebody, some man in the burbs, and it cost you that's your value. I resist those values. I don't like those values. I don't believe in those values. Uh, I think those are superimposed, stereotypical, brainwashed Mm. ideologies. And so, and my sexuality, uh, that there's a a notion that sexuality is you're born, like I was born, you know, wanting to, uh, this may be a little risque for your audience, but I was born wanting to uh, lick vaginas or something, you know, like uh, that. That's why I'm a lesbian. Like, no, you know, I, that's not true. I wasn't born a baby, right? Like I didn't know mm. shit. And I resist those notions that I was born to be a stereotypical image of. So my two-spirited lesbian, gay, bi, trans ideas are that I'm resisting all of those notions. I'm mm. not this this may not be a lot of queer people may not be doing that or lesbians may not be doing that, but that's my notion of what uh, to resist to be liberated, to be free, to be authentic. I think the most important thing is to be authentic because if my authenticity, you know, I like to do drag, but if I want to do drag every day and just wear like tons of makeup and have the hair and I've done that, you know, it's fun, like why not play? Um mm-hmm. But whatever I want that those to be conscious, conscious decisions, having thought through what does gender mean, mm. being critical of it, and then deciding, okay, today I'm going to put on my suit. I might pack, you know, or I might put on this dress. But knowing that I've chosen to do those things because I can see the whole realm and knowing the possibilities are all there for me and everyone else, whatever they may be. You know, I, 
I remember I had a friend and his name was Brandy and he used to paint a line down the middle of his face, like his whole body. And he would make this outfit and one half would be female. Right. And the other half would be male. And he would go out like that all the time. And that was kind of what he saw himself to be. And I just thought that was fantastic, you know, and he was such a great like makeup artist and stuff. And, but I think this, that's the idea of the freedom uh, and not to have, because I mean, in some ways people say, Oh, the gender binary well yeah it's true don't be in a binary like you know be whatever everything even if you're not be it who cares try it so these just these binaries of of um, notions of our humanity because it's just a limit it's a human limit right so human you you want to be as much as you can be in the world this is only makes sense so in every way so to say that one is only you know, like for me to say, I'm just a female. So therefore one, two, three, four, this is all I do. Those binaries is limits are. So lesbian and gay uh, lifestyle, two spirited has allowed me to, especially the idea of being two spirited. So I'm male spirit. I have female spirit. So all of that just kind of flows and it can come out here, there, wherever I want it to be or how it is meant to be. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe that like, I'm, I'm, I don't think that, uh, I think ideally or essentially we all have these spirits, two-spiritedness. It's impossible. But I mean, so maybe people will say, no, but I think it's just the range of our humanity, like that we can be all these things. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's what it looks like. And my politic, of course, because I'm kind of like a communist, is more um, it's rooted in a kind of a global kind of trying to figure out because I think, you know, I remember once Chernobyl happened and uh, that was the radiation in Russia. It came, this plant blew up. Mm-hmm. And they said in Ontario there was a big hole in the ozone layer because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it created this hole. And when the ozone, that meant the UV rays came down, right? And uh, So, and I thought, wow, look at the world, you know. This happens over here. This happened. This is the reaction here. So to me, that's kind of how I see the world. Like, if that's happening over there, it's happening over here to me too. Right. You know, like, so whatever is happening in the Congo with millions of people dying, or whether it's the Romanian bodies that have been, you know, shoveled down and murdered in the earth, all of that, if it's in China or it's in India, it's all my concern. You know, because I think the earth is one people's and all people's have to be okay within that. It's not enough to, uh, you know, be the like the pigs at the trough and just get your own and fuck everyone. I I don't think the world can exist like that. I don't think Mother Earth can exist like that. You can't be fracking Mm. certain parts of the earth and, you know, uh, so it all has to be one. So that's kind of my politic, um, which some and of course people hate communists because of that right because it is a global idea um you know and 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 of course you know people like you Bridget who are 24 years old are the future they're the hope and what you can envision and what you can dream and what you can see are things I can't even imagine because the world you know there's a, a great um poem by um, a Persian guy, I think it was written a thousand years ago, and it's on um, children. Hmm. And it's like, okay, your children are not your children. They are the sons and the daughters of life longing for itself. 
they are with you, though they are with you, they are not you. You can give them your love, but not your thoughts. They have their own thoughts. You can house their bodies, but not their souls. For their, for their souls dwell in a place of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You can strive to be like them, strive to be like them, but you cannot make them just like you. So when I say you're young, I mean it's that your generation are the children. So you have visioning the future. You're visioning the future now. You're living, right? You are the future. So as you vision this new future, um, I can only look to you and say, you know, what is your vision? You know, how can I, what can I do to assist? You know, can I, you know, uh, sweep the floor behind you or whatever, you know, what, what can I do to assist? What knowledge could I, what would you want to know from me? Or, but you are the leaders of tomorrow. So, and I think that's very much goes back to indigeneity too. You know, it's why people always talk about elders. What is your role? If you're an elder, it's, it's just simply to be there to sort of hold up what you can, but listen to the young people who will tell you what is going to happen, where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And that's the best way um, for, that's the best way, that's the best way life can renew itself. There's mm-hmm. definitely a place for elders, but there's definitely the youth to be leading the struggles. And I think what's held so many struggles back is that a lot of like old feminists or old queers or, you know, they're, they're kind of holding on to all this stuff, you know, and it's, and staying in these jobs for too long. They should mm-hmm. move off the jobs and give them to young people and get out of the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's, and um, so uh, that's, I think that's what I would hope the future would look like, you know, that that is to me, that's what the future should be. It will be young people who have such great understanding that, you know, I can't even uh, imagine, you know, uh, I just like to learn more, you know, just, just for me, just to even be able to keep up with what it is, what what's going on. It, it would be a, you know, it would be an honor just to even hear that, you know? Yeah. That's so beautiful. That openness, like so few people are so open. Um, and yeah, it's, it, that's really amazing. And I just hope that it goes both ways. I mean, like we need elders and we need young people. And I hope that both can like bring that kind of openness. Cause like, how do we hear each other if we're just so set in our, in our own ways? And yeah, that's, that's very cool. <laughs> this is I think it's it's something I think it's that's just sort of like the indigeneity right like it's not it's something that life is it really is what life I think in its authenticity should be mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of inauthenticity now but if it was authentic I think that's the thank you Faith so much for uh, coming on the podcast and I hope you have a really lovely rest of your day Thank you so much, Bridget Polly Fry. <laughs> Hope I said it right. Polly Will Fry. Did I? Yeah. Yep. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you for doing this work, you know, collecting uh, old queer stories before they dead and gone. <laughs> it's, it's good. <laughs> it's my favorite. I love it so much. I feel so lucky okay. to be, to just be an earpiece. Um, so, yeah, thank, well, you, thank you for sharing it. Well, and thank you for sharing all the knowledge, your knowledge with me. I appreciate it. 
So thank you so much to our special guest, Faith Nolan. It was a true pleasure speaking with you. And I laughed a lot, which I had to cut out for clarity purposes. But just so you know, there was a lot of laughter in this episode. This podcast is a remote project funded through the Michael Lynch History Grant through the Bonham Center for Sexual Diversity Studies. We really hope you enjoyed this discussion and that you enjoyed this series. I would love to hear from you about what you thought, any takeaways, any work that we can do to build on this. We are looking to do a season two, so please stay posted for more information. My email is bpalufry at rainbowfaithandfreedom.org. That's B-P-A-W-L-A-W-F-R-Y at rainbowfaithandfreedom.org. So I very much look forward to hearing from you. With that, we have more episodes coming out as part of the regular Queer Devotion schedule. We have one scheduled with Dr. Alex Abramovich, who has been doing really important research looking at queer and trans houseless youth in Canada and in Ontario and sort of the disproportionate makeup of 2SLGBTQ plus youth in that population. And I've cited that research in the report I wrote um, called Mapping the Landscape of Faith-Based Heterosexism and Transphobia in Canada. Later in the summer, I'm speaking with Dr. Travis Solway, who has done some also very important research on conversion therapy in Canada and how a huge majority of that is still being done by religious groups. And it is not federally banned, so we're going to have a really interesting conversation about his research and putting into context with the work that we're doing at RFF. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.